Well, good morning. If you are new, we've been doing a series called Stand Up, and we have been using lazy boys or recliners as a metaphor that men need to kind of get out of their recliners, so to speak. They need to stand up and be the men and the spiritual leaders and the husbands and the fathers like they need to be. And so the the the, uh, the recliners are just a metaphor of that, and so we've been doing these skits each week. And of course, this is the uh, the last week of our series. And up until this point, we have we began with Adam, and we said, you know, Adam was kind of the stereotype. He kind of represents men today in the fact that a lot of men are passive. And he was passive when he should have done something, when he should have said something, when the serpent was tempting his wife, he said nothing and he did nothing. And he's kind of a stereotype. A lot of men are passive today when they should stand up and when they should say something and when they should do something, they don't. And then we looked the second week and we talked about Joshua and we said, well, Joshua was kind of the, the prototype and he shows us what masculinity should look like. And then last week we looked at Jesus and we said, well, Jesus is kind of the archetype. And we kind of contrasted the way Jesus portrayed masculinity versus the way our culture today often portrays what we termed toxic masculinity. And then this morning we're going to look at some words of Jesus that is directed toward all of us. But we're going to make some very specific applications toward the men this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I just pray this morning as, as, as we talk about this subject, and Father, we've got a lot of men here I know that totally get it, but Father, I just pray that you challenge all of us to be all in and to be the kind of men that you want us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, before Amazon... Walmart was the king of the hill, so to speak, when it came to the retail business. And it's hard to imagine that the billion-dollar phenomenon that we know as Walmart today began in Bentonville, Arkansas in 1950 in a store that was called Walton's Five and Dime. Later, Sam Walton realized that the future of retail was going to be in the discount store. And so he founded the first store that actually had the Walmart name in 1962 in Rogers, Arkansas. Today, of course, it's a multi-billion dollar business. What is the key to this retail phenomenon? Well, early on, It had to be a man with a passion, whose name I already mentioned, Sam Walton. And Sam Walton had, as he puts it, a passion to win. Quoting quoting him in his own words, I have always pursued everything I was interested in with a true passion. Some would even call it an obsession to win. Sam Walton's passionate life refused to let him do business as usual. 
He knew that if he could come up with a way of making shopping fun and unique, he could build a great company. And of course, at one point, his passion made him the wealthiest person in the world. But he always said it wasn't about the money. He said it was really about two things. It was about his employees and his stockholders. And then it was also about the customer. Talking about his stockholders, when Walmart went public with their initial public offering in 1970, if you would have bought 100 shares of Walmart stock, it sold for $16.50 a share, so your initial investment would have been $1,600, well, $1,650, I'll get it in a second. If you would have made that investment... In 1970, that stock today would be worth $35 million. I think most people would be okay with that return, right? But he was, he was passionate about his employees, that, that they would reap the benefits also of this, this phenomenon that he, that he was in charge of. So he, he was always very generous with his employees. And then he was also very concerned about the customer. And he always wanted to make sure that the customer was number one. Have you ever wondered how Walmart ended up with the greeters? So in the 1970s, he went to Crawley, Louisiana, and he and a vice president were walking into a store, and nobody knew who they were. They were just two customers walking into the store. And this particular store, the manager had a person out front front greeting people. And when Mr. Walton and the vice president walked were walking into the store. He just was friendly toward them, had no idea who they were, were, but he was just treating them like, you know, customers, just very friendly. And uh, Mr. Walton was just totally impressed by this. So he, he sought the manager out and he asked him, what, what gave you this idea of having, having this greeter out front? And he said it actually had nothing to do with welcoming people initially. They were experiencing a large, they had a big problem with shoplifting. And so he didn't want to post a guard at the door and intimidate the customers. So he came up with this idea, well, post a person who looks like a greeter, but at the same time, that will also send the message that somebody is watching you. And from that was born the greeter concept. And he wanted to make sure that all his stores had greeters after that. But passion of one man is what made Walmart great. You know, passion is contagious. Churches can have passion. Families can catch passion. Businesses can catch passion. Organizations can catch passion. And as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we ought to be passionate about Jesus Christ. Passion ought to be a a major part of who we are. And we've kind of been making our applications toward our men. Guys, are you passionate about Jesus? I mean, like really passionate? I'm not talking about passion like defined by Hollywood. 
I'm talking about a man that is filled with a passion for the things of God. That you're excited when you see somebody accept Jesus Christ. And you're excited when you see somebody baptized. And you're excited when you see things going on at your church. And you're excited when you, when you see good things happening in your community. That you can tell are directly related to God working. Does that excite you? Now, if we're talking about passion this morning, it's probably a good idea to define exactly what we're talking about because passion is one of those words that, that can vary according to context. And so I kind of want to talk what passion is not, and then we're going to look at scriptures for just a few moments. Passion is not sensuality. I think a lot of times in our culture, we get passion confused with sensuality. Hollywood has had a catastrophic influence on our society and our contemporary culture. The movie industry and the video industry have absolutely raped the innocence out of our culture. It has destroyed minds. It has devastated families and individuals. The advertising and marketing industry has contributed to this moral slide. Beautiful half-dressed women parade across our television screens and across our computer screens and on billboards selling everything from shaving cream to, to alkaline batteries. The images are omnipresent and pretty much unavoidable. You see it all over the place. What are those advertisers doing? I mean, is there really a connection between a curvy, sultry model and some brand of multigrain bread. Is there really a connection there? No. What they're doing is they're after our pocketbooks. And sensuality degrades a man's mind. And it degrades the meaning of the word passion. So we're not talking about sensuality. We're not talking about sex. That's not what we're talking about either when we describe passion. Passion is also not success. You know, most men have a great desire to be successful. And despite that fact that nobody can really kind of define what success is, most men want it. And so there's all these definitions out there. You know, well, it's how big your house is or how much money you have or, or what kind of car you drive or, you know, how much property you might own or, or what your newest toy is. And men spend the vast majority of their lives trying to climb up the ladder of success. And they're climbing the corporate ladder and some of them may make it to the top and then they find out, you know what? Success is not really here. And some of them, the ladder breaks on their way up. And some of them lose their families. And some of them lose their careers. Passion is not success. It's not sensuality. It's not sex. So what is it? And first, let me say there's nothing wrong with the word passion. But passion that we're going to be talking about this morning is actually found in Scripture. And it's an emotion. It's an emotion. 
it's interesting that the word enthusiasm, which is where our word passion comes from in the Greek, actually comes from the word in, E-N, and then theo, which means in God. And it refers to emotions that are in God. And it just refers to that idea that we are given a God-given emotion to be expressed toward Him because He is the greatest person in the universe and our enthusiasm, our passion should be greatest for Him. You know, it always is interesting to me that particularly this time of year, even particularly last night, that hundreds of thousands of men, but not just men, but hundreds of thousands of men will go to Sanford Stadium and they'll go to Needland Stadium and they'll go to uh, uh, Bryant-Denny Stadium throughout the fall and they'll cheer their favorite teams on and they'll wear the orange and the red and uh, the burgundy and and I was at a, a home last night where they were watching the Tennessee-Georgia game and it was loud and it was rowdy and people were excited and people were cheering when their particular team made a great play and we can get so excited about that and we'll question every coach's decision like our life depended on it and after the game we'll be exhausted because we've used a hundred percent expended a hundred percent of our energy and there will be men literally that will be depressed if their team loses did you know that when tennessee or georgia loses our attendance is down we can graph that I mean, it's true. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, we'll be talking, oh man, they lost last night. There's some people that won't come because they're, they're depressed. And as excited as some men get about football, there are other men that they don't, they don't care about football. But they're passionate about hunting or fishing or, or maybe working on cars or, or maybe working in their yard or some other DIY project that they have that, that they're passionate about or some kind of hobby. And the point is, most men get passionate about some wholesome activity outside of work. And there's nothing wrong with that. But yet the same men that can have all that excitement will come to church and sit on their hands. Mm-hmm. I don't get that. Why are we not excited about the things of God. I'm not talking about artificial like cheerleader kind of stuff. But just excited about what God does. It saddens me. To think that so many men. Can think they are too cool. To be enthusiastic. About Jesus Christ. I'm talking about Christian men. That just think it's not cool. To be excited about Jesus. They can get excited about the latest movie. They can get excited about showing somebody their their newest toy. They can be excited about a business deal. But yet, they can't get excited about God. And they sit on their hands and they sit stone-faced and unmoved in a worship service designed to lift up their eyes and worship and adoration to the king of the universe. Real disciples of Jesus Christ are not that kind of men. They are men filled with enthusiasm and excitement and desire and fire for Jesus Christ.
and they're not afraid to let people see it. And again, I'm not talking about some rah, 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 go Jesus stuff. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about a genuine excitement for the things of God. And do you know God commands us to be passionate about Him? We're going to be over in the book of Matthew today. We're going to be looking at a few verses in the book of Matthew chapter 22 where God commands us to be passionate. This is what he says. I'm going to read two two passages. The first one I'm going to read is from Mark chapter 12, which is a parallel passage to the one in the book of Matthew. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And that is a quote of Deuteronomy chapter 6. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your minds. Do you know what both of those passages tell us? That's a lot of passion. That's a lot of enthusiasm for the things of God. It's a lot. With all your being, he's basically saying. And so I just kind of want to look at the the other passage that deals with this same verse over in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. And I kind of want to give you the setting of what is going on here because it's important to understand as, as we look at the verses there, 34 and following. It's the last week of Jesus' life. And shortly before this, he has thrown the money changers out of the temple. And he was really upset with them because they were disgracing the temple and they were cheating people in the temple. So with righteous anger, he has thrown them out of the temple. As a result, the enemies of Jesus, who are many, have have developed and thrown a hurricane of hatred at him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they don't like Jesus. They hate Jesus. Jesus is getting these great followings. And and, and they want to discredit him. So they come. And as you read earlier in the passage, they give these series of questions to to trick him on political matters and, and on theological matters. But each time he discredits them. But they're trying to discredit him and they're trying to make him fail. And so they they keep coming together and they keep trying to figure out ways of doing this. And so this is kind of their last opportunity. In fact, in the parallel passage in the book of Mark, it says this. When this was over, no man dared ask him any more questions. So this is their final attempt to discredit Jesus, to make Jesus look bad, to make him lose his followers. So beginning in verse 34, let's see what happens. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So Jesus, the word silence there actually means gag. It's like they didn't even have a choice. He gagged them. So he silenced the Sadducees. And so now the Pharisees have already kind of been put down once earlier in their passage. They're again trying to figure out how do we discredit Jesus. And so they come together with the Sadducees. One thing you need to understand about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they don't like each other. I mean, they are enemies. But as much as they are enemies, they realize that Jesus is a bigger enemy. I mean, it's kind of like this. Georgia and Tennessee don't like each other, but they both like it when Alabama loses, right? I mean, like they both don't like Alabama probably more than they dislike each other. 
And that's kind of the idea here. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they don't like each other, but they really see Jesus as the enemy. And so they're trying to figure out, what can we do? How can we trick Jesus and make him look bad in front of everybody? Jesus is claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be the Messiah. They don't believe that. The Sadducees and the Pharisees don't. They believe that Jesus is just this this man with a big ego that's trying to convince everybody that he is the Messiah. So they're trying to disprove him. So verse 35 says this. One of them, and that one of them means a a Pharisee, one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law tested him with this question. Some passages take that word expert and they translate it lawyer. So this guy is an expert. He teaches law. He interprets law. He knows the law. He's an authority on law. This guy, the the, the word suggests that that he's like a cut above the rest. like, Like he's the real deal. Like maybe he graduated from Yale or Harvard School of Law. Maybe he sits on the, you know, like a Supreme Court justice. I mean, he is the real deal. And so they're going to use him like he's the smartest of their group to come and challenge Jesus. Send the best we have, so to speak. And the idea is that they want him to fail at this test. They want him to lose his popularity. Now, to understand the question that he's about to ask them, we need to understand why he would ask this particular question he's going to ask, which we'll get to in just a second. You may remember, you may have heard this somewhere before, maybe you've studied it, but there are ten commandments in Scripture. Everybody's pretty well aware of that, and sometimes referred to as the Decalogue. But then the Pharisees added 613 other commands to the Ten Commandments. And here's what's fascinating about this. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but the reason there are 1,613 additional commands is they did it based on the number of letters, Hebrew letters in the Ten Commandments. There are 613 letters in the Ten Commandments. So they came up with an additional 613 commandments that they just... These are the things that you do or don't do if you're spiritual. 248 of them are do's. Like you need to do this. These are the things that you need to do to be spiritual. And there's 248 of them because they based it on the number of body parts that they thought were in the human body at that particular time. I have no idea why they did that. Couldn't find anybody that could explain that, but that's what they said. Then that makes an additional 365 to get to 613. How many days are in a year? 365. So they added one more commandment for each day of the year and arrived at 613 commandments. Now everybody understood that you can't possibly keep 613 commandments. And so they kind of like had heavy commandments and light commandments. The 248 were the do's, the 365s were the don'ts. And some of them were like, you've got to do this. And then some of them were like, yeah, it's kind of semi-optional. You know, if you don't do that, that's okay. 
And so they had all of these commandments that you're supposed to keep. So here's what they hope to do. To the Sadducees, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, that was all that mattered. And the authority of Moses. To the Pharisees, they believed in all of the Old Testament, but they really emphasized the Pentateuch also, the first five books of Scripture. And you have to understand back then that that they basically equated the authority of Scriptures with Moses. I mean, Moses is at the top of the food chain for the Jewish people at this particular time in history. And so what they wanted to do was ask him of these 613 commandments and the Ten Commandments, which of these are the greatest? And what they were hoping is he would say something new. That he would say something outside of that. That he would say something that would disagree with what Moses had said. And then they'd have him. Because then they could say, see, he's an apostate. See, he's not the real deal. He's adding stuff on to Scripture, and we know that you can't do that. So that is what they're trying to do. Get him to come up with something new so that they can discredit him based on the the laws of Moses and the authority of Scripture. So what is the question? Verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Of the Ten Commandments, of the 613 additional commandments, Jesus, tell us which one is the greatest. And without hesitation, this is how he answers in verse 37. Jesus said to them, him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And do you know what he was doing with that answer? He was also quoting the verse I read to you a while ago, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those words from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, that's like the Magna Carta for the Jews. I mean, that, that was it. And he quotes that. He says, that's the greatest commandment. Well, they all know that. I mean, even today, if you knock on somebody that's an an Orthodox Jew, they'll have a little box on their door. You open that box and there's a little scripture, a little piece of paper in there. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The things they wear on their forehead that you've probably seen pictures of. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Twice a day, they take it out, read it, and then they put it back. And back in Old in, in New Testament times, they did that. All of them did it. They all knew that verse. I mean, it was the Magna Carta, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's everything. And so when Jesus quotes that, they didn't trick him. In fact, he shows his solidarity with Moses. He is one with Moses. He is one with the Scriptures. I'm not a heretic. I'm not an apostate. I'm not coming with something you don't know. And he just blows them out of the water. Now I want us to take a look at this passage. The, 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 the words there that he uses. Because it's talking about being passionate. It's talking about being enthusiastic, enthusiastic about God. It says love. You know there are lots of words for love in the in the Greek and the Hebrew language. You've probably heard that before, agape and eros and phileo and that kind of thing. Well, this is agape. 
And here's the definition of the love that he's talking about. It's the love of the will. It's not an emotion. It's not that kind of love. It's It's not the love of feeling. It's a love of commitment. It's the highest kind of love. It's not a love that you feel, but it's a love that you're committed to. A love that says what is right and what is noble. No matter what I feel, I still love. It's a love of intelligence. It's a love of purpose. It's a love of the will. It's not an affectionate love. It's not an animalistic kind of love. It's the very highest kind of love. Purpose, will, noble, pure, self-sacrificing, supporting what is right and what is worthy. And so that's what he's saying to them. Love God with your whole being. That kind of love. And then he kind of breaks it down in these other terminologies here. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Basically, to understand the the Hebrew, what they refer to as the heart, is they're talking about the core of a person's identity. Remember Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23? Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are, what? The issues of life. Everything, remember it's the core of their identity, comes out of the heart. It produces words, it produces purpose, it produces intellect. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so it's that, it's, it, we, we don't think of heart necessarily this way, but it's kind of talking about the intellectual part. And then there's the word soul, love the Lord your God with all your soul. And when it's isolated, it best refers to emotion, that, that type of thing. And then he says mind. Now we think about mind and we're thinking about intelligence and all that kind of stuff. But here it actually has more to do with with intention. For example, we might say, well, he had a mind to do that. We've all probably said that. He had a mind not to do that. And then Mark adds an additional word that's not found in Deuteronomy or found in, in the book of Matthew. But he adds the word strength with all of your strength, which means all of our physical capabilities. So this love is to be comprehensive. Did you notice the word all there that's used each time? All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. It literally means the entire with that word all there. The whole. God's wholehearted love for us cannot be answered with half-hearted commitment. By describing it as the, 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 the soul, the mind, the strength, the heart. There's no area left out. You see, God is not looking for men who are wanting to fulfill a religious ritual. He's not looking for men that, you know, they're just going to show up when there's a crisis in their life. He's not looking for men that are ashamed of him. Oh, so you go to church at work? Somebody asks you. Well... You know, that's my wife's thing. I just try to keep the peace. He's not looking for that. He's looking for men that are all in. They're wholeheartedly in. God's not looking for people that on the outside, they're one thing on Sunday and there's something else during the week going through the motions. I don't know, when God loved us, did he go in half-heartedly? No. 
gave his son to die for us. He was all in. He gave his son enough, loved us enough to give his son. We should be all in and love him enough to give ourselves. Ripley's Believe It or Not says the longest love letter that was ever written was written in 1875. And it was written by a Parisian painter by the name of Marcel de Leclerc. And he wrote it to a lady by the name of Magdalena Velleret. And he loved this lady so much that he had this idea that he would write, I love you for every year. This is the year 1875. So that meant he was going to write, I love you, 1,875,000 times. Not being a dumb man, he got a secretary. But he didn't want to diminish his love or his expression of love by just having her write it 1,875,000 times. So here's what he did. I can't say the French words without massacring them, but it's three words, just like I love you in English. And he would say those three words in French that mean I love you. And then the secretary would write it down. And then he would say it again. And she would write it down again. And they did that 1,875 times. Ripley's Believe It or Not says this. Never was love made manifest by as great an expenditure of time and effort. It's a nice thought. But it's not true. In the first place, God loved us in a way that can't even be measured when he sent his son to die on a cross here. And secondly, when we love God back with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, we love God more than that guy loved that lady. And we show that with our passion and our enthusiasm and our obedience to Him through a life of obedience. So here's how I want to end this series. I know each week we've kind of had little homework assignments and things to talk about and that kind of thing. But here's how I want to end it. I want to give you men a list of challenges. There are 15 challenges. We're going to kind of put them up on the screen one at a time. I'll tell you right now, some of them are a little easier than others, which means some of them are harder than others. As these go across the screen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick out two of the 15. And if it's something you've already, you already do, it doesn't count. You have to pick new stuff. Okay? And then at the end, I'll go back through it one more time real quickly because I know sometimes when you're going through, the, you don't know the whole list yet. It's sometimes hard to make up your mind. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand up if you accept the challenge of doing two of these things. And then I'm going to pray for all of us. All right, so here we go. Fifteen things. Number one, and remember, if you already do this, you have to pick new stuff. Take a godly man to lunch and ask him five questions about faith and family. Number two, 
Text an encouraging text to your adult children telling them that you love them and that you're praying for them. Number three, say I'm sorry to someone and take responsibility. Specific responsibility. Number four, if you know of a single mom or a widow in your neighborhood that needs help with something, find out what it is and help her. Number five, our men's group, we call it Men's Fraternity, meets every Wednesday night during the school year. We meet in Route 200, that's above the gym over there. Meet at 6.30 on Wednesday nights. Make a commitment to be there every week. Number six, ask a brother in Christ for accountability in an area in which you struggle. Number seven, make a commitment for one week to pray for your boss and co-workers as you drive to work. That's a one-week commitment. Number eight, join a connect group. That might be a Sunday school class. It might be our men's group on Wednesday night. It might be one of our home groups. Number nine, ask someone for help with the struggle that you have. Number 10, pray out loud for your wife every night for one month. Number 11, this one's actually not mine, but I, I, I love this idea. For a week, when your alarm goes off, hit the snooze button. Well, you say, well, pastor, that's nothing new. I do that all the time. <laughs> but when the alarm goes off and you hit the snooze button, don't go back to sleep. Get up and then pray until this alarm goes off again. So if your snooze is set for nine minutes, then you start the day off with nine minutes of prayer. Number 12. Rub your wife's back for 10 minutes, 10 minutes, without making a move. That's part of the deal. And like, don't set the timer. 10 minutes, okay, I'm done. No, 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 that's not the idea. 13, write a note of forgiveness to your dad. Mailing is optional. 14, every day for a week, ask your wife, How can I serve you today? Number 15, become a follower of Jesus today. So you went through the 15. I'm going to go back really quick. Pick out two. If y'all can follow along again, we'll go quickly. Dana, Take a godly man to lunch and ask him questions about his faith and family. Text an encouraging note to your adult children and let them know that you're, you're praying for them and that you love them. Say, I am sorry to somebody and take specific responsibility. If you know a widow or a single mom in your neighborhood, this is number four, ask how you can help them. Make a commitment to come to men's fraternity every, every once a week, every Wednesday night. Number six, ask a brother in Christ for accountability in an area that you struggle with. Number seven, make a commitment to pray for your coworkers and your bosses on your way to work for a week. Number eight, join a connect group. Number nine, Ask someone for help with something you struggle with. Number 10, pray out loud every night for your wife for a month. Number 11 is the snooze button idea where you hit it, get back up, and then when it goes off, you stop praying. Number 12, rub your wife's back for 10 minutes. Number 13, write a note of forgiveness to your dad. Mailing is optional. Number 14 is every day of of one week, ask your wife how you can serve her. And number 15, become a follower of Jesus today. So you're supposed to pick out two. If you are willing to pick out two, I want you to stand up and then I'm going to pray over all of us. If you're willing to do that, stand up. And I don't want you to do it because everybody else is doing it. I just want you to do it because you feel like God's led you to do it. Would you pray with me, please?